The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. So, as Julie mentioned, we're starting a new series in the book of Ephesians, and you know, singing that, uh, that last hymn together, The Love of God, I, I'd never seen the connection, but like, that's like a song singing the prayers of the book of Ephesians. And I'm like, that's so awesome, like, I, I, wanna, I wanna pray that, and I wanna sing that more. So this wasn't really what I, what I planned, but just as an opening prayer, as I, as I feel my need for God's grace and help, um, I, I, I want to pray what Paul prays for this church uh, in Ephesus, and I believe it's God's heart for us, and it's his heart for this series. Um, so you, you don't need to turn there yet, but just, just join me in prayer, and I'm just going to pray this prayer from chapter 1, um, starting in verse 16. We pray this over our church. I do not cease to give. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. And... Paul's writing this letter, probably from prison, and he's writing it to a church that he spent a lot of time with. These are people that he knows and he loves. And it's a rich book that expounds the gospel and its implication for the the community of believers, for for our relationships with one another. And today, right, in our culture, we're used to going to church, and you can kind of pick and choose, right? We have options, you, there's different denominational affiliations, there's different cultural expressions, there's different age demographics, and, and you, you kind of find the one that seems to, to fit you. And if something doesn't fit anymore, right, in our kind of church culture, we, we feel free to go somewhere else. And there's a, a goodness and a richness to the body of Christ here, but also there's something that we, that we miss. And in, in this, right, and in the church of Ephesus, the Christians were this persecuted minority, right? They didn't just kind of pick and choose, oh, I'm going to go to this church over here because I, I like this pastor better, or I'm going to go over here. No, it was kind of like, we're the church of Ephesus, and, and we're, we're going to worship together because, like, you know what? Our lives are, are in danger. There's significant persecution or at least discrimination, and we need to stick together. And if, if, if we're totally different politically and racially and, and, or ethnically, but you love Jesus, hey, we got more than enough in common to get along. And that was how the church was, was shaped. And, and, and what you see in this book is there's this 
this key theme of bringing together the, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, right? And, and how they can be one body together. Now, if, if it was kind of like how we do things, you'd have the first, the first church of the Messianic Jews on this side of the street, right, on this corner, and then a few streets over, you'd have the, the first Greco-Roman church of Ephesus, right? And, and you'd have the Gentiles over here, and, and they'd have all their, their like, uh, like pork uh, potlucks and all these the great kind of things that these Greco-Roman former pagans would do as they celebrate, and then you'd have the, this very more, maybe more formal, kind of Jewish synagogue-style worship gathering of the Jews, and you never mention pork, and they would never show up in any of the potlucks, right? And these, these would be separate churches, and whatever your ethnic background or your kind of worship preference would be, you'd go to that church. Okay, that's not Paul's solution to people not getting along. He doesn't say, just go to different churches. Like, that's, that, that's the easy way out, I think, that we have chosen to do church in America. Instead, he talks through how the implications of the gospel and the call of the gospel call us to Jesus and new life in Christ and call us to a new community that brings people together. Right? Just, just think of the, the three main things that we don't like to talk about in mixed company. Right? Politics, religion, and I think we could put race on that list, right? Because these are hot topic issues. We might think, hey, you know what? I can be like your coworker, but we don't want to get into big hot issues, right? Because then we might not be able to work together anymore. Or there would be like this awkward weirdness of like, well, you have this, you, you have this view and I have this view. And we just, we stay away from it, okay? The Jews and Gentiles of this day had all those things to like the nth degree, right? Different religious background, Oh, yeah, right? Pagans versus like the centuries of Jewish culture and religion and Torah and law and all this. Different political views, right? The Jews viewed the Greco-Roman world as, as an occupying colonial force. How do you want to go to church with, with the colonial occupiers of your nation? Oh, yeah, we're, we're buddies. I, I wish you'd leave, but buddies, right? That's a big issue. And then... So, I mean, race, politics, there's, they can't even have potlucks together, okay? Like, so they have a lot working against them, and, and the gospel brings them together. Now, I don't know if you've noticed in our society, division is a problem, right? Like, if, if you just remember, like, I don't know how many friends you might have lost on Facebook over the, the last election, Right? Hopefully you didn't lose too many because you were that guy, right? But, but maybe, like, there's just, there was just this growing division that you experienced, right, over, over politics, over different views of life, and, and, and there's just this, just like these two different worlds in our country politically. I was listening to NPR just a couple weeks ago, and they had this interview and discussion about millennials and how millennials can't imagine marrying someone with a different political bent than them. Okay, so a liberal, progressive, Democrat, millennial could not imagine marrying a Republican. Like, it's just like, because it would be too much of a, of a different worldview, a different way of seeing life. 
Now, it, and then they talked about how the, the parents' generation, it's like, oh yeah, mom's a Democrat, dad's a Republican, and they love each other, and they get along, and they have healthy debate, and they forget about it, right? The next generation in this cultural climate we live in, you can't even, you can't do that. And it just kind of shows how both when you replace, you take God out of society and culture, some other ideology has to replace it, right? So our politics have become our religion. And as Christians, we can say, oh yeah, I, I wouldn't want to marry and join myself to someone that doesn't follow my, my commitment to Jesus. Well, without Jesus and God, politics become your religion. And so you can't imagine marrying someone who, who doesn't have your, right, right, your affiliation. Your, this, is, this is the camp I, I join myself to. So we really, in this culture, need a vision for how to be united in the midst of differences, in the midst of diversity. And the book of Ephesians is, for us, is a prophetic word to that situation. So we're going to spend the bulk of this series in chapter 4, okay? It's kind of a summer series. Summer series would like to keep it a little shorter, and we're going to hammer down into chapter 4, which is the, the kind of uh, butter meets the toast, rubber meets the road, like here's the practical, here's how, what it looks like in life, of how we get along. Was butter meets the toast not a, a saying? Did I just make that up? Sorry, I see you guys like scratching your head like, it, 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 it's a Hawaiian thing, okay? Butter meets the Yeah, yeah, start using it, man. Share it on Facebook, make it go viral, and like next year it'll be like Webster's new word. Um, yeah, so anyway, this is the practical chapter. This is like we're getting down into it, and of, of how we get along as, as a community of believers from diverse backgrounds. So I the privilege of taking two weeks to give us the background to chapter four, okay? So I'm going to preach uh, three chapters, which is, I don't know how many verses, 21 plus 22 plus 23, add that up, I'm not good at math. Thank you, Andrew. Um, so, <laughs> that was quick. So I got two weeks to preach, preach all those verses. Um, so I can't do that. So what we're going to do is I'm going to preach one verse, four Chapter 4, verse 1, okay? And this is like that, that hinge verse, and he's going to drive into the, the call of the gospel. And this is like the foundational command of this book of how we live this life in community together. So, turn to your Bibles, look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's a calling there. And what we see in chapters 1 through 3 is that there's two expressions of this call, this gospel call on a believer's life. The first is the call to salvation, the call to new life in Christ. And that's where, I, that's where I'm going to focus in on. And the second call is the call to community to being joined together into a new body, into the church. That's where the preaching team is going to dig down into and say, what does that look like to be called into one body? I get to focus in on the call to the gospel because if we don't get the gospel and it's not always in our mind, it's not that, that power that drives us into community, 
right? We're not getting anywhere, right? You don't get good fruit from a dead tree, okay? So we're, we're talking about new life, how we get alive in Christ so that we can then bear good fruit. And so this week, I want us to drive into that call of the gospel in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You probably know this section of scripture, this is, a, is one of like the clearest, most beautiful expressions of the gospel and of our new life in Christ that we read in the New Testament, okay? So that's where we're going to drive into um, and spend the, na- the, uh, the next 30 minutes or so together on this. I'm just going to read a little bit, and then we're going to talk about it. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and, and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's where we start, right? The gospel starts with an honest self-assessment of the human condition and our own condition personally. Now, it's hard to talk about this. These are, these are heavy, hard words in a culture that's very much like, I'm okay, you're okay. Let's all get along. Let's, like, let's be positive. Um, and some might hear this and be really offended. It feels harsh. It feels like it's got bad vibes, right? But as a community of faith, Right, we, we believe in, in the authority of all Scripture. That's why we want to preach through books of the Bible. We want to be forced to deal with, with easy teaching and things that, that, are, that we can like relate to. Oh, the love of God. We like that. We like singing about that. Okay? Like, we, we write less songs about the, being dead in our sins and trespasses, right? <laughs> but it's important to talk through it as we read the Bible. But I want to I add this caveat. We have to read the scriptures in context, and you can't just take one biblical truth out of context and out of its proper proportion to the rest of scripture, right? That's how you, how you start cults. That's how you get weird, weirdo, wacko, like, like going to the internet dark web where you're like, you can read whatever wacko belief you can think of from some random proof text, right? No, we, we read the text we're in in the light of the context of God's revelation. And so we're going to dig into, like, this is how, like, drop dead, just wicked and depraved we are. Okay, it's there. We're going to be honest about it. But the context of the scripture is that the Bible teaches the highest view of humanity, of any other world philosophy, of any other world religion, right? It goes back to Genesis and the Imago Dei, right? That's Latin for the, the image of God in all people. If you want to build a, a foundational philosophy for, for valuing the freedom of people, valuing the, the dignity of people, valuing uh, their worth, their equality, you build it on the Bible. So let that be said the Bible's view of people's value, dignity, and worth is unprecedented and is absolutely amazing, okay? You've got to start there. But 
it doesn't then have this wishy-washy, we're all okay, like can't we all just get along, and evil is just some kind of secular construct out there. Um, it, it, it actually is honest about evil and evil potential in the human heart. The Bible is not naive about us. There's this great quote I found. Uh, it's Blaise Pascal. I don't know if we, oh, we can pull it up. I'm going to read it. There's some really old language in this because the dude lived between 1623 and 1662, okay? So there's like old school wor- words that in like politically correct police world, you're not allowed to say. So just forgive the dude. He's from the 17th century, okay? Here's the quote. And this is this Christian mathematician and theologian. He says this. He says, Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine of original sin. Yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. What a chimera then is man, right? That's that Greek Greek mythology of like half, half, half good, half evil. What a chimera then is man. What a novelty. What a monster. What a chaos. What a contradiction. What a prodigy, judge of all things, imbecile worm of the earth. You can just tell someone this week, hey, I went to church and got called an imbecile worm of the earth. Okay? Welcome to church. Um, In the 17th century. We're a a depository of truth, a sink of uncertainty and error, the pride and refuse of the universe. It is dangerous to make man see too clearly his equality with the brutes without showing him his greatness. It is also dangerous to make him see his greatness too clearly apart from his vileness. It is still more dangerous to leave him in ignorance of both. And that's what our secular culture does. But it is very advantageous to show him both. And that's what we want to do. We read the scriptures, we see both. And it's incomprehensible, it's a paradox, but they're true and we need to hear both. Now in this passage, we're going to see three powers of sin and what it means to be dead in our sins and our trespasses. Okay? So you might say, I'm not dead. I feel alive. Okay. What does Paul mean by being that we were formerly, if we're apart from Christ, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses? Okay? It goes back to our origin story. Right? So much of the scriptures goes back to Genesis. It's a story of not just what did happen, but what always happens. Right? God said to our first parents, if they ate of that tree, the one thing that was forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. Right? That as they sought life apart from God, as they sought to be God themselves, to choose right and wrong for themselves, they, they made that step out of God's blessing and, and relationship with him, they would surely die. But as you read the story, you're like, they didn't drop down dead. They're, they still seem alive. But that's because it's this spiritual death that happens. It's this unraveling of the fabric of our, of our human nature. It's the breaking of relationships between our creator, between one another, between ourselves, and, and, and the creation around us. Right? And it's this curse of death that slowly begins to weigh on our first parents, and we see it through the history of the world that weighs upon humanity, right? And to be dead in your sins means that you are separated from God and shame and fear rule your life. That's like that first response, right? Adam and Eve, right? We're naked. 
Quick, get fig leaves. Cover up the shame. Immediately they feel shame. Immediately there's separation and fear of God. God, I gotta hide from you, right? Immediately there's blame, right? And there's breaking a relationship in the marriage. She made me do it, right? There's this, this breaking of relationship. There's this, this covering and power of shame and fear that rules our life when we're in sin. Now you might say, if, if you're here as a, uh, and, and you're, you don't identify yourself as, as a follower of Jesus, or you're wrestling through these truths, you might say, you know what? Tell you the truth, I'm not ruled by shame and fear, right? I have my act together. I'm a well-balanced, well-adjusted person. I know how to deal with my shame. I know how to deal with my fear. I got my act together. I'm not ruled by these things. Thanks for saying that. I, I appreciate it if you're thinking that because you actually just proved my point, okay? You actually just proved my point. At the heart of our rebellion against God is a self-salvation project, okay? We are DIYing our souls, right, and trying to fix the brokenness in our, in our lives as though the brokenness of our humanity can be solved and fixed by watching YouTube videos, right? Oh, I, I just, I can figure this thing out. Pull it up on YouTube, there it is, DIY, I got it fixed. No, no. When the Bible says that we're dead in our sins, right, it means that we're helpless, that we cannot fix ourselves. If you read in the, the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 6, it uses this analogy of sin. It says that, that there's a reign of sin, a, a ruling that sin has over the world and over those that are apart from Christ. It's this, it's, it's this metaphor of like an oppressive government a ruling force that keeps people in subjugation to death. Now, now, now hear this, hear this. Sin is not primarily doing bad things. It's not primarily doing the, 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 the things that are like, uh, those are taboo, those are bad, those are like, ooh, the church doesn't like those things, and that's what sin is, right? No, sin is a power that rules over the lives of all people who are under the curse of death. And get this, sin rules in our lives primarily through a vicious cycle. And it's the vicious cycle of self-salvation, okay? Like our first parents who have doubted God's goodness, right, and they desired the forbidden thing, the result of that was shame, fear, guilt, isolation, right? But rather than turning to God, when we feel these things, we experience these things, we create fig leaves. We create things to cover up our shame. Do fig leaves work very good for covering up? No, that's why none of us are wearing fig leaves this morning. They don't work well, right? And so, we point fingers, we attack others to prop up our guilty conscience, we numb our pain with destructive habits, we try to put our life back together with the self-help tools of our secular culture. And you know what? It jacks us up more. It messes us up more. And it's this vicious cycle, okay? The clearest metaphor I can think of for this is when my, my two-year-old son gets down one of my older children's beautiful, big, huge Lego creations from the shelf and looks at it and then accidentally drops it, because he's two, right? 
and the wing breaks off. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to fix this, right? And he, and he tries to put the wing back on, and then the other wing falls off. It's like, okay, now put one on, put one on, and then the whole front falls off, right? And next thing you know, the two-year-old has destroyed the entire thing, right? And, and my six-year-old son comes in, no, Levi destroyed my Lego spaceship, right? That's us. That's us. The wing falls off, and we're like, we'll fix this. We'll put it back together. No, we're making it worse. We're making it worse. It's this vicious cycle. And we're, now I'm going to talk through, these are the three ways that sin keeps us bound in that cycle of self-destruction, even while we think we're fixing our own problem. Okay? Three ways. The secular culture, the unseen realm, and then our, our selfish desires. First, the secular culture. We see it here in verse 2, right? In which you once walked, following the course of of this world. We were following the course of this world. Maybe some of you this morning are there. The primary problem with secular culture is not that it promotes bad or immoral things. The primary problem is that it denies Jesus and offers a false hope for salvation. Okay? We don't think of culture as offering salvation, right? We just think of it as, oh, it's just what we do, right? We just... We get entertained, and we go have fun, and we do these things, we watch TV, and we don't think of it offering salvation, right? But that's what it is. The culture offers us ways to numb our pain, to heal our brokenness, to cover our shame. Okay, just, just imagine yourself in the checkout line at the supermarket. Every one of those magazine covers is offering you a view of the good life. It's a view of the good life. If you could look like this person, if you could uh, gain this skill, if you could have this toy, that's the good life. You'll be happy. Oh, your, your shame will go away, right? And then it offers the seven steps to do that, right? How to have a better sex life, how to, how to win the girl, how to be better at this, how to get, uh, climb up the corporate ladder. Whatever it is, each of those magazines offers a view of salvation. And we buy into it through the promise of pleasure, comfort, acceptance, right? But it, it turns into this, this, this life of consumption. Our culture just knows how to, how to consume. And eventually we consume ourselves and all those around us. You just think of social media and the idea of presenting our good life to the world. It is a course, right? It says the course of this world the path of this world, it leads to death. But there's no, like, warning signs. There's no dead-end signs. They just come this way, detour, come this way, and then you fall off a cliff. That's the way of our culture. The second way that, that we are ruled in this, this vicious cycle of sin is what I'm calling the unseen realm. And Paul refers to Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air. Now, whenever Paul talks about this unseen realm, the place where angels and demons live, he uses words that describe authority. 
And it's kind of confusing to us because we're like, why, why does he say rulers and dominions and authorities, right? But you read in John 12, 31, Satan's called the prince of this world, or in Matthew 9, the prince of demons, or in 2 Corinthians 4, the god of this age. Okay? That's, that, that's hard for us to hear. We, we, we could sit in church and believe it, right? The Bible says that there's an unseen realm and there's a demonic force that wants to destroy us, okay? Now, sit in your cubicle at work or with one of your clients or someone in a coffee shop and talk about the demons that might be there working in their life, right? Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Like, like, like you're going X-Files on them or Twilight Zone. Like, it's just not, that's not how we think in our secular culture. We don't take it seriously, Right? It's because we live in a materialistic culture. We assume the only things that are real are what we can touch and see. But what the Bible teaches and what most cultures have known for most of the history of the world right, is that there is an unseen realm and that evil is not just impersonal. It's not just some concept, but it's actually personal. In the naturalistic worldview, if, that, if that's true, right, there's no such thing as evil, there's only natural selection. And might makes right. And, and you're just like, we just can't talk about evil. And we certainly don't talk about evil having a personality, having a malevolent personal force. We, don't, we can't talk about that. But I'm, I'm going to challenge us in our culture, okay? Think of every single movie villain that you've ever seen, or at least most of them, and then think of most of the scary movies that you've seen, if, you, if you've watched scary movies, okay? The villain and the evil that's embodied in all of these cultural narratives that we tell to one another is never natural selection. It's never a random accident that happens. The villain is always evil embodied. It is always a malevolent force with a personality that's out to destroy. And that's the fear. That's what makes a scary movie scary, is that there is an evil that actually has wicked, destructive intentions against us. Right? That is our fear. That's why we make movies about it. And we go and watch those movies to feel scared but actually be safe because we're, we're sitting on our couch eating popcorn. Just th- I want you to think about this. Think about Heath Ledger's depiction of the Joker in the Dark Knight. If you want to see a pop culture depiction of Satan, that's the best one right there. Okay? Because his character doesn't just embody doing bad things, right? Or breaking the law, or like, I'm going to go st- rob a bank and steal things and then I'll be rich. His character embodies chaos, and senseless evil. Chaos for the sake of chaos. Violence for the sake of violence. That is the enemy of your soul. And when you buy into his lies, when you buy into the the system of the world, we're like the Joker's henchmen in that opening scene. Remember the, the, the bank robbery? And you're like, oh yeah, okay, the Joker's the bad guy and he's gonna rob a bank. And he's got henchmen to help him do it, and he's going to take a bunch of money and be rich. And that's our, our surface narrative of evil. 
you steal things, thou shalt not steal. And the movie cuts beneath the surface and you start seeing the henchmen start killing each other. And, and you find out, and then at the end, he burns the, load, the big pile of cash. It's not about the money. It's about chaos. It's about, it's about the destruction of humanity and life. And when we buy into Satan's plan, we're those henchmen. We're like, I'm going get, to get it good, right? I'm going to get this big reward. I'm gonna, he's going to share with me in this, this, this load of cash. But all I have to do is cap the other guy so there's less money to go, or there's more money to go around. And you find out that he told the other guy to cap you. And you realize you're just a pawn. You're just a pawn in the plan. You, you, you think you're, you made a good deal? No. He's out to kill and destroy you. Don't buy into it. And, this, and the third way, the third way that we are dead in our sins and the way that, that this sin has this vicious cycle in our life is our selfish desire. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? Passions of the flesh, and it, it speaks about that there's, there's desires of the body and the mind. Sin strips us of our humanity, of our value, our dignity and worth, and we become slaves to passions, slaves to addictions. And that sacred temple that's meant to be our body where we worship the Most High God, where he dwells in holiness, instead it becomes desecrated. It becomes just a, a tool to be used for money and sex and power. Right? Sin doesn't care about you. You're just a means to an end to glorify itself and, and dishonor God. Sin and sinful desire and passion is like fire, okay? There's a, another analogy to get in your, your head. Fire, if, if you think, oh, I will put this fire out in my life by feeding it. It wants more, so I need to satisfy it to get it to stop asking for more. Does that work? Does fire go out by, by feeding it to satisfy it? No, it increases and becomes more and more destructive and more and more hungry. That's how our sinful desires are wired, right? Taking the good gifts of God, taking them out of the place of goodness and wholeness and saying, I need it now, lusting for satisfaction and pleasure now, is, is that fire. And, and the more you lust after it, the, the more consuming that desire or that addiction becomes and the less free you are to enjoy God's good gifts. And those good gifts then lose their value and their beauty and become just filthy, dirty things. We are made to enjoy God's goodness and his gifts freely, without shame, without guilt. Another analogy, think of when we, we pursue our, our sinful pleasures, it's like the payday loan, okay? It's like, okay, I got a bill collector coming, I'm out of money, okay, I'm going to go to the payday loan office, or I'm going to pawn something off, and, and they're going to give me some money so I can pay off this debt, so I can get this thing that I think I need, 
and I'm going to pay it off right away, right? And then you come back a week later, and you're like, what? I owe five times as much as what I borrowed a week ago? Right? Our sinful desires, right, don't have a fixed interest rate. It's one of those arm loans that balloon out of nowhere, right? The interest increases. It's destructive. It pulls you in, and there's always hidden fees involved, okay? Right? You think, oh, I've read the fine print. I've, I've counted the cost. I've figured how I can get away with this, how I can just kind of nurture this, this hidden sin and continue in this, and it'll be okay. There's always hidden fees. There's always an interest that blows it out of proportion, and we're bound, and we're dead. Okay. That's where it starts. That's where the gospel starts. That we are dead in our sins and trespasses and we're stuck not just doing bad things. In a vicious cycle under a a culture lying to us, a satanic force trying to oppress us, and then our own desires waging war against us. But it doesn't stop there. And this is what we will close on. One of the most beautiful two words in the Bible Verse 4, but God. You were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's good news. That's good news. This word mercy here, that God being rich in mercy, is translated 200 times in the Greek Old Testament from the word hesit. This Hebrew word of God's covenant love, right? This this breaking the accepted norm, going above and beyond. God is showing love and mercy. It also speaks of pity and compassion. We can show pity and compassion to people when we have suffered ourselves, when we understand what they're going through, right? We have patience with them. Right? Jesus has suffered deeply under sin. It says he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. He can show compassion to us because he understands, and he suffered under our sin on the cross. And then love seeks the highest good of the one loved. And we see the three specific ways that his love transforms us. And it undoes each of those three vicious cycles. The gospel does this. He's made us alive, right? He's seated us with him, and then he's going to show what are the what it says the uh, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus forever. This is amazing. This is amazing. Those three ways that this gospel, that the work of Jesus on the cross, dying for sinners, and then raising from the dead and conquering death and sin and Satan, the three ways that this this gospel undoes that vicious cycle in our life. First, the secular culture, 
right? That course of this world, it leads to death. And at best, the culture gives us fig leaves. But when you experience the resurrection power and you experience this new kingdom in Christ, that vicious cycle of pleasing the world ends, right? It says that we were, um, we were, no, we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. That's where our life is hidden. That's where our hope is hidden. Or this unseen realm, this, this bondage that Satan can hold us under, it says that we've been raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places. That's this picture of authority, right? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When he sits in the heavenlies, he's on a throne over all of the rulers and authorities, right? Satan flees at his word. When it says that we're seated with him, it says, you share in my authority over the unseen realm. You share in my authority over the attacks and lies of the enemy. No self-help plan in culture is going to free you from demonic oppression. Jesus alone does that. And then finally, our selfish desire. Look at this. Look at this. The, the lure and cravings of our selfish desires are broken, right? And we, we, we try to find hope through them and life and healing through them, right? But God comes in and breaks those addictions, breaks that, that lure of our passions by offering us a better pleasure, a better promise. Look at this. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The only way to break the addictions and passions of our flesh is to, is to see and behold a greater pleasure, a greater life, a greater riches. Right? His immeasurable riches in Christ Jesus. Right? Try to beat that pornography. Like, try, like all the promises of this world. Try to have a greater pleasure and satisfaction than Jesus Christ. His immeasurable riches poured out on us forever. All that, that loneliness, that desire for, for companionship, for hope, for, for uh, someone to say, you're okay. You're not a mess up. You're not a mistake. Right? The culture can't do that. The lies of Satan cannot do that. Numbing your pain with your sinful desires cannot tell you that. The immeasurable riches of Jesus poured out on you forever, that will overcome those selfish desires. That will set you free. And religious piety and keeping your nose clean is nothing compared to knowing Jesus personally and living radically for him and living in his radical grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to know that grace. We want to walk in it. And you have spoken that, that if we are in Christ this morning, formerly we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God, you were rich in, in mercy and you have made us alive in Christ. You have raised us up with him and you will pour out on us the immeasurable riches and joys and pleasures untold of your love. And that is the affirmation that we need to hear today. That is the hope to which we have been called. 
And I pray for those who, who wonder this morning if they've experienced that resurrection life, that new spiritual birth. I pray if those who haven't, that even right now they would ask Jesus for you to make them alive, that they would talk to someone this morning, that they would seek it out um, and not stop until they've found it. And for us that are, uh, that, that hear death still knocking on our door, hear Satan and, still, and sin still whispering lies in our ears, Lord, may your resurrection power, may we know, as Paul prayed, right, that, that immeasurable riches, that we would know that greatness of your power towards us who believe, so that the, those whispers would be drowned out, and that we would be led as gospel people to love one another and to love this world. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your name. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.